If you brought your copy of God's Word, open with me to Matthew chapter 6. And continue in this portion of God's Word where we left off last week. And as Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount has showed us, as we've been working through all of chapter 5 and even into chapter 6 here, one of the phrases that I've mentioned is that the heart of the matter is the matter. God is interested in our hearts, the motives of our hearts, and for them to be right and pure and true before Him. So in going through chapter 5, if someone were to say that they've never murdered anyone, well, that's well and fine and good. However, Jesus, his, his rebut to that is, yeah, but do you harbor hatred in your heart towards someone? Because if you've hatred in your heart, it's akin to murder. Or perhaps you've never been guilty of breaking the seventh commandment and you haven't committed actual adultery with somebody. But if you have an adulterous heart, you're guilty of breaking the seventh commandment nonetheless. God has repetitively shown us over and over and over that the heart of the matter is the matter. He wants his children's hearts completely and totally devoted to him. Keeping the outside of your cup washed while the inside is dirty is not a sufficient means in the eyes of God, and he alone has the capacity to see what the inside of the cup looks like in our lives. You could fool me, perhaps, or I could fool you, but at the end of the day, the Lord knows the heart. And he said that if our deeds didn't surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, they were very outwardly religious. Their, the outside of their cups were very clean. They were fastidious in perhaps keeping the law of God. But he said that if your, if your righteousness didn't surpass theirs, that you wouldn't be entering into the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that has come. John the Baptist preached, Jesus preached, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and people were coming for water baptism, a baptism of repentance, because they wanted to be in Messiah's coming kingdom. And so John the Baptist even had the, the uh, foresight to tell said individuals, the religious leaders, those Pharisees and Sadducees who were coming and being baptized, as they were moving away, what did John say to them? Hey, don't forget, guys. You need to bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance. Just the saying of the thing and the acting of these religious ceremonies, let's, let's call them water baptism, and the saying of certain things isn't sufficient. You need to, to bear fruit that's in keeping with it because the heart of the matter is truly the matter. And if there's no bearing of fruit that demonstrates a, a truly changed heart, then the repentance that was so sought for perhaps wasn't as sincere as one might have thought. But then when we began chapter 6, we saw Jesus drop a very significant warning about the motives of our hearts when we seek to bear fruit. That is in keeping with genuine repentance. Again, letting us know that the motive of the heart um, is being called into check by God so that as we seek to Practice a righteousness. Again, we're doing it for motives that are pleasing to God and not for self. And thus, what we know is that we are to be practicing, that is a, a life of progressive sanctification, if you want to call it that. You might want to think about it perhaps as just simply this, a Godward life. Like we, as the children of God, are to be practitioners of this thing called a Godward life. We, 
We've been saved by the mercies of God, by the grace of God alone. We now see clearly the love of God as poured out through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are pursuing and we're practicing this Godward life of being pleasing to God with right motives so that this new covenant people of God that he is calling by his name would be different than those of the old covenant who are trying to maintain a right standing in the keeping of the law of God, which the Apostle Paul clearly lets us know in the New Testament that the law of God in the Old Testament was simply like a school marm that led us to the knowledge that we could not be good enough ever to keep his law, and so we're in need of Christ, we're in need of saving, we're in need of grace. Amen? So this is where Jesus has been taking us, and he wants us to know that the heart of the matter is the matter, and is while we are practicing these outward Godward lives, we need to make certain and beware of something that we looked at at the beginning of last week, and it was this word right here. He started off by saying beware, right? Beware of something. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Beware of this. You've been saved by grace through faith. You no longer want to live for yourself. You want to live for God. You don't want the, just the outside of a cup to look good. You want the inside of the cup to look good. But just beware of practicing your righteousness, your, your deeds, this Godward life. Be, beware of doing it before men for the exclusive purpose of being noticed by them. In other words, we're not to simply not live lives of righteousness. I mean, one of the things that we see very clearly here in, in 6.1, by the way, 6.1, as I mentioned last week, is kind of like the setup verse for this larger section here that goes from 2.4 that we looked at last week on dealing with generosity of almsgiving to poor and looking out for the needy around us. And then we're going to be entering into 5 through 15 on prayer and then fasting 16 through 18. Aren't you ready for fasting? No. Okay. Well, one of the things I've heard is that we, uh, we oftentimes don't look forward to prayer either. That if you start talking about prayer and giving, alms and prayer, and these three, these, these three things that Jesus seems to, by implication, indicate that this is what the, uh, that, that Godward life in part should be um, made up of. It's the very three things that he, that he gives here by inspiration, the Spirit does in the Word of God. Um, but we need to make certain that we're not practicing our righteousness before people for the sole purpose of being noticed by them. But do not miss the obvious. The people of God are to be what? Practicing righteousness. We can't make that mistake. Yes, beware of not doing it before men. In other words, the motives of the heart, why are you doing it? Yes, we need to be aware of giving to the needy and the poor. Yes, our left hand shouldn't know what our right hand's doing. Yes, we need to be people of prayer. Yes, we, we need to be doing and practicing spiritual disciplines in our lives, but our heart motive for why we do them needs to be brought in check. That we're not doing them before people simply to be noticed by them, otherwise we've lost a reward that is from our Heavenly Father. The loss of heaven's reward. The loss of a greater likeness in the, the conformity of the character and image of Christ as a result of loving God from the heart and not wanting our righteousness to just simply receive the applause of men. Men will see what you do oftentimes. It's inevitable. People will see what you do. And on occasion, they may even assess wrongly motives of your heart. 
Have you ever had anybody perhaps wrongly assess motives of your heart? And instead of, instead of giving you the benefit of the doubt, that the reason why you may have done X, Y, or Z was for a good motive, but they tend to always go to the low end and say, selfish, looking for self-interest, etc. So the word of God here isn't given for me to look into, into your life and to say, oh, well, what's the motive of Greg's heart? What's the motive of so-and-so? No, this is, this is for me to be putting check on my heart. Ben Averett, make certain that you're not practicing righteousness before men in such a way to be noticed by them. So we're talking about prayer today, and we're going to talk about some of these issues. But as Seth Daniel stands up here and he prays, is his prayer, is the motive of his heart, and the only person that can truly know the motive of Seth's heart as he stands here and prays, obviously he's going to be noticed by people. We all notice that Seth is standing here praying. You notice that I'm up here preaching. You hear me pray, etc. But who, notice, who, who truly knows the condition of one's heart when said religious activity may be taking place? The individual and God. And so the warning here of being aware of practicing this is for the individual. And so it's not for me, I'm not God, for me to say, yeah, look at Seth, man, he sure prays long prayers. Man, he must really want to be noticed. But no, that would be sinful on my part to, to, to wrongly judge a brother. I'm not to stand in him as a judge and become God in this, in this situation. Seth in his own heart knows how he prays. Ben Averett in his heart knows how he prays. Pastor Matt, etc. Anybody who stands up here before people, are we doing it to be noticed by you and to, to have the applause of man and to say, oh, he's such a great guy? Or are we truly doing it because we love God and we want to see the people of God equipped and edified and built up in, their, in his most glorious grace? The heart of the matter is the matter, isn't it? And so this has application, not just for those who can stand on a platform. This has application for everybody in every context of life. Your heart is the heart of the matter before God. God wants your heart. He wants your motives to be right. So don't give away the most amazing reward, one of the most amazing rewards of heaven, of being more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ for the paltry recognition of men. Amen? It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. And one of the spiritual disciplines that we need be practicing until the day of Christ Jesus is that of praying, of talking to our Heavenly Father. Notice kind of on a larger scale here, this is the entirety of the section. But just notice the highlighted part here, when you pray, verse 5. Verse 6, but you, when you pray. Verse 7, and when you are praying. Verse 9, pray then in this way. Clearly, we see Jesus teaching here that prayer is to be and be becoming an aspect of what our practicing righteousness is to look like this side of heaven. And one of the surest things we know from the Old Testament is that God's people assuredly sought to pray to the Lord. As a matter of fact, we know that even then, in the Old Testament, God called on his people to be praying people for the encouragement and the strengthening of their faith in him. We see 
could have gone to many passages, but one in particular is here it is. Here's my Jeremiah passage. It's Jeremiah 33 3. In Jeremiah 31, we've got the new covenant. We've got a lot of new covenant language in this section of Jeremiah of when God is going to be doing some things to his people. But he says here to Jeremiah, he says to him, Call to me, and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now, I don't have the time this morning to give you the complete surrounding context in which this sits, but make note of three very simple observations about this passage just exegetically. Not, not contextually, but just exegetically. One is that prayer is commanded. This right here, this call to me, call here, this verb in the Hebrew is in the imperative. It's a command where he's telling Jeremiah, he is not suggesting strongly to Jeremiah that, hey, you might want to call to me, you might want to talk with me. He's commanding Jeremiah that you need to come to me in, in prayer. So prayer is commanded. And secondly, we see that an answer is promised, and I will answer. Now, oftentimes, we run into trouble with this aspect where we get this, this promise of an answer. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, I pray to God and ask him to do X, Y, or Z, and he just doesn't do it. Has anybody ever felt that way? At least once, probably everybody, right? Thank you for the hand, right? At least, at least once, we've all felt this way where we pray and we pray and we pray and we kind of wait and we wait and we wait. And you always hear this kind of the cliche, well, sometimes God's answer is no, sometimes God's answer is not yet, or sometimes God's answer is, I've already done for you what I can do for you. You're asking me to do something for you that you need to do. It falls in some, some of these categories, right? None of which, whenever we're in time of need, do we appreciate hearing, but it's true nonetheless. So... Prayer is commanded and answer is promised. And we also see that faith is encouraged and strengthened. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Things which you do not know. We are people who live by faith. He's going to be telling Jeremiah that there's going to be a restoration of the, of the nation of Israel. To, to which God is going to pour out his spirit upon them in a way that he's never poured out his spirit upon them. Do you think Jeremiah, by eyes of faith, could know for certain that that's true? Or would Jeremiah have to be strengthened and encouraged in his faith to believe in the things that God is showing him here? Things that he has not seen. Things so great and mighty. Things which you do not know. Prayer also is a place where we can be encouraged and strengthened in our faith as we read the word of God and we see his promises and we pray his promises and we wait for things yet unseen. So as Christians, we're not merely counseled or recommended to pray, but God's word commands us to pray. Now, when was the, perhaps the last time you stopped to think about the fact that God commanded you to pray? And what might that tell us about God? I mean, in God's commanding us to pray, does that tell us that God doesn't know exactly what God's going to do, and so he's up for some good counsel from us. And so he needs us to come to him and pray and to tell him things that maybe he could do. Hey, God, if you did it this way instead, I think things would go better. I don't think that's the case. Um, it's not that he's not glad to hear your good ideas on how to run uh, his earth and his people. And, and your life in particular. We perhaps like to tell God of how if you would just do this for me and run my life this way, I would sure be a happier person. You know, God's, that's per perhaps not why God has us to pray. Um, it doesn't 
He doesn't call us to pray because he's limited in knowledge or lacking information. But what it seems that it does do is it lets us know that God is interested in a living and an abiding relationship with his children. And he desires for us to become progressively more dependent on him for his wisdom, for his discernment, and for his direction. And that we come to him in prayer seeking these things, and thus he commands us to come to him so that we can grow a greater dependence on him. And how else are we going to taste and see that God is good? than to go to God, to feed on his word, to cry out to God, to wait, to wait, and to wait, and then to see God act and move and respond in certain ways that conform to the goodness of his, his will in our lives. I believe that God's wanting to grow a deeper intimacy with his people. How about you? And so God is commanding you to pray. He wants you to come to him, to speak to him, and he will give you answers from his word, things which you do not know you can discover. God's desiring intimate fellowship with his people. He always has and he always will. Prayer is in our coming to God, making demands on what God must do to keep us happy, but instead it's an opportunity of our casting our cares upon him because he cares so deeply for us. A few New Testament passages that kind of confirm this reality. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 Pray without ceasing. We could talk about what does this mean without ceasing and how, the, how we make application of without ceasing. Well, what about when you're driving? What about when you're this? What about when you're sleeping? Just pray at all times. Just be in prayer. You ever been driving down the road and you're praying for somebody in your head? Absolutely. You don't have to always go into your inner closet like Jesus is going to show us here. There are times when we go into our inner closet and our prayers to be secret before God. But there's also times when we're just driving down the road or, or perhaps talking with a friend and we're in a conversation. I'm saying, Lord, could you give me some wisdom on how to break through in this conversation? And I'm just saying that to myself while I'm in conversation with somebody. Pray without ceasing. Luke 18.1, we're to pray at all times. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Man, that last part's really key, isn't it? Not lose heart. And sometimes it seems that in counseling people over years and in just in the experience in my own life over years of living with myself, that sometimes there's a lack of prayer because we lose heart because we do pray for things so often and so frequently and we're still waiting and we can lose heart. And so the very opposite that needs to happen oftentimes happens. The, the, ad, the lies of the adversary, those fiery darts come flaming in. God's not ever going to answer that. God's not ever going to... And so we lose heart and we perhaps stop praying. Let's not do that. At all times, pray so that we might not lose heart and we can instead grow in faith. Luke 18, Luke 21, 36. Keep on the alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all things that are about to take place. So obviously this is a passage in Luke dealing with eschatological issues, but praying that you may have strength. Romans 12, 12, rejoicing in hope, persevering in, tribu in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Pray at all times. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. 
There are so many passages. One more, uh, Peter. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Spirit is inserted into the text here in the New American Standard, trying to kind of clean up or make some interpretive value to it. I kind of like just reading it the way it is. Be of sound judgment and sober. You might have thought sober-minded and sober for the purpose of prayer. Recognize if you're a part of that last generation that the end of things is truly nearing, be sober for the purpose of prayer. So this morning, we also desire to learn from the Master Himself about prayer. Jesus has a lot to teach us about prayer. So how about I pray as we look to the Master to learn more about prayer. Father, would you give us insight? This is a discipline, something which you've commanded us to come to you to do. It's to grow our faith in you. It's to grow a greater and deeper dependency upon you. And certainly it's one of the things that our true adversary, the devil, wants us to never do. Is to de develop the devotion of prayer, the discipline of prayer, of total dependence and submission to you. Would you cultivate this, Lord God, this discipline within our hearts? Might we not leave today discouraged? Not leaving today thinking, man, I just seem to try to start praying, but I fail. Lord, would you not leave us discouraged, but encourage us to do as Paul said, forget what lies behind, forget about it. But from today moving forward, that we would just press on and press into Christ, press into these, dis these spiritual disciplines for the purpose of godliness, that we might grow in our, in our, our intimacy and our dependency on you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Oh, by the way, since I prayed there, my, my time resets. I get to like the, all of that. That was just like, this is now the sermon time. So we're just not, now I get my full 45 minutes starting like right now, just kind of letting everybody know. Isn't that what happens when you pray like that? I think that's what happens. Usually not, Royce says, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm tracking with you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. When you pray, you are not to be like these hypocrites, Jesus say. For when they prayed, specifically, they were looking for the applause of men. And we see here in the passage in two particular places. One standing and praying in the synagogue and another Praying and standing on street corners. Uh, synagogue prayer, it would seem, would be that which is led by a member of the congregation who would stand before the congregation, perhaps the lifting of hands, the recognition of their need and dependence on God, and who would do their best to pray some form, it would seem in the, in the context, since they're being called out as hypocrites here by Jesus, perhaps their prayers turned into um, mini sermonettes, 
uh, perhaps even including the elevation and the de-escalation of their voice with even dramatic pause along the way, with voice variations and all of that perhaps for dramatic effect. Jesus is saying that when you gather in, with God's people, let's just be people of prayer who's not looking for the, the attention of, of men. And secondly, here's a different place, is that by on street corners, and it would seem that these street corner prayers were carefully timed performances scheduled around a daily temple sacrifice and or during the time when public fasts, that when the trumpets would sound from the temple, when the recognition of a time for a, a, a public fast might be beginning to indicate that it was a time for prayer. Perhaps these would be some of those street corner prayers that professional religious people were just anticipating and propping themselves up so that they could, as Jesus says here, so that they could be seen by men. Jesus says to not be like this. Do not be like those. Because again, what does he say here at the end of verse 5? Truly I say to you, they have the reward. So here again, this idea of reward. People's hearts are interested in rewards. We do things for rewards. We like to to get on the good side of people for particular reasons. There's rewards involved in most things we tend to do in life. They have their reward in full. So they give up the greater reward, a reward that comes from heaven again, in order to get the reward that they were seeking. And notice again in the text, uh, notice the text nowhere says that they were in this though they were right here desiring to be seen by men, none of the text ever even says anywhere that they actually were highly esteemed by those before whom they were praying. It never even says that they were actually applauded by the people before whom they were thus performing. It never lets us know that they actually ascertained the respect of people that they were so desiring, but it lets us know particularly that they were what? Seen. This, is, this was the reward. They were just seen. What they did was seen by people. Maybe some revered them, maybe some didn't. But nonetheless, Jesus says this was what the reward was. They were seen by people. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said this. He said, Our king was wonderfully plain spoken and called both things and persons by their right names. These religionists were not seekers of God, but seekers after popularity. Men who twisted even devotion into a means for self-aggrandizement. They chose places and times which would render their saying of prayers conspicuous. The synagogue and the corners of the streets suited them admirably. For their aim was, quote, that they might be seen by men, end quote. They were seen, this was the reward, and the whole of it. And then Spurgeon leaves a little point of application for the rest of us down here, and he says, Lord, and for himself, Lord, let me never be so profane as to pray to thee with the intent of getting praise for myself. Amen? Let it be so. And then the other way that Jesus tells us not to pray, so he starts telling us, First, how not to pray in verse 5. 
And then the next place where he tells us how not to pray, we're going to skip verse 6 real fast and look at verses 7 and 8. This is another passage where he tells us how not to pray. And so in verse 7 he says, And when you are praying, again the clearly implied aspect of the Christian life, one who's been saved by grace, a recognition of being disciplined in prayer, when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father who knows what you need before you ask, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, some people, it seems, wrongly use this verse to say that road prayers are always wrong. And they use this idea of repetition as the idea of a rote prayer. And then others will use this verse wrongly to say that. Um, that, pr that praying perhaps isn't even as uh, needed as perhaps we think because after all, what does it say? Um, the Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So if He already, by implication, if He already knows what you need before you ask Him, and He is sovereign after all, right? I mean, He's completely sovereign. He has His decreative will, what he has willed will happen. No man can stay his hand. And since no man can stay his hand, and what he has willed will happen, do we really need to pray? I mean, he already knows what we need before we ask him, so what's the big deal with prayer? Now, obviously, both of these concepts are completely wrong. Let's deal with the first one. This idea of meaningless uh, repetition that that uh, wrote prayers perhaps are always wrong. But did you, again, notice the, the actual language here in verse 7. And I think the key word here for us is this word meaningless, right? Do not use meaningless repetition. So perhaps repetition isn't really as bad as we might think it is. As a matter of fact, um, oftentimes I've heard that there's a dislike of some contemporary styles of worship because of the use of repetition. And it gets equated with being meaningless repetition because you're simply saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And since you're just saying the same thing over and again, it just kind of, from some people's perspective, becomes repetitious and they might even wrongly... Um, attach meaningless repetition. Now, perhaps that's true in, in their life because they just dislike repetition. But one of the things I often point out is when you go to the book of Revelation and you see that the angels that stood before God day and night, they said the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over, day and night, forever before the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they just repeat that over and over and over. And they never cease saying that which is true. And God never got tired of it. So I think the key aspect is the word meaningless. If the things that you're saying are, are meaningless, I think that probably is where Jesus is keying in with when you pray, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And so I think this idea of many words here in the meaningless is they think that if they just kind of keep praying and perhaps keep saying the same thing, and if I say that same thing, whatever it is that my need is, enough times that maybe that's going to be the, the thing that triggers God or trips God over into responding and answering the prayer that I'm laying before Him. 
And he's, he's saying that these, these many words are not necessarily needed. That they become meaningless at a certain point because, and this is what does away with the other aspect that I mentioned, because God already knows what you need before you ask him. He's not saying that you don't need to ask. We do need to ask. Because it says right here, when you're praying, the clear assumption that we've seen is that we are going to be people of prayer. So we do need to be praying. But we don't just have to keep repeating meaningless repetition in that perhaps God's not going to hear me if I don't keep saying this over and over. But can we repeat our prayers? I've been repeating certain prayers on my prayer list for, for years. But when, I'm, when I go to God in prayer, I might be somewhat on the side of being too quick to get past that prayer again. Certain individuals within my family that I pray for for their salvation but while I'm in that prayer, I'm not just repeating it over and over and over. And perhaps this has more of that public demonstrative aspect of prayer when you stand up and you repeat things perhaps over and over. But we're not called to not pray, to pray with repetition. I think we can pray repetitiously. I've been praying for people's salvation, as I mentioned, for years. And I'm still going to keep praying and waiting on God. And if he chooses not to answer, he's God, not me. I'm going to leave it there. God is good. He does all things good. So the clear implication here of he already knows what you need before you ask him deals with the many words, just let him know, and then keep moving on. You don't have to keep repeating it over and over. At some point, that becomes meaningless. God already knows. You've shared your heart with him. He's got it. Leave it with him and move on. That's probably more in the, app, the idea of supplication before God, right? Now, when we're before God and we're giving adoration, I don't think there is such a thing of meaningless repetition when it comes to adoration for God. If you want to tell God how beautifully and brilliant his mercy and his grace and all of his attributes, and you want to, and you want to expound on that and just tell him how holy, holy, holy he is, I think when we're talking about and praying and telling him of just the beauty of his attributes, I don't think that there's anything meaningless about that at all. Yes, he already knows it, but again, as we've seen in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the angelic creatures are doing this before him all the time, forever. But when it comes to supplication, God knows what you need, pray it, and move on. Again, it's not about the words. It's not about the words. It's about your heart. Now, how to pray. Oh, I, I inserted this again as a segue between with this about the, the lack of he already knows what you're going to pray before you need it. It's implied that we're supposed to be praying, and so I inserted this again just to remind us. 5, 6, 7, verse 9. Clearly, God calls us, he's commanded us to be people of prayer. Look at verse 6, how to pray. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Jesus here is showing how rightly to pray. The word translated inner room, go into your inner room. This word, this Greek word here is um, translated, it's, it's just the idea of a private inner chamber, probably a, sto a store chamber within one of the houses back in that day. It seems that what Jesus is teaching his disciples is the importance of getting alone time with God finding that inner sanctum, that inner room, that closet, some translations may say, 
where you could even just get alone with God for prayer. We know in Mark 1.35 that Jesus prayed privately. He went away to a, 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 a solid place to pray before the Lord. We know in 2 Kings 4.32 that Elisha did the same. We know in Daniel 6.10 that Daniel, as was his custom, he went and he prayed alone with the Lord. How many of you are familiar with the, um, it's, a, it's an old TV show. Some of you young folks may not have seen it, but some of you older folks perhaps have. It's uh, The Waltons. Anybody? Uh, not as many as I thought. We're, I'm getting older. Yeah, there's several of you that didn't show me originally. Yes, The Waltons, you've seen that. Um, this kind of reminds me, I was reminded of when, when I think of this inner chamber, this inner room, closing your door. When you pray, you remember what, um, what's probably one of the first things you think about when you think of the Waltons and John Boy and his little um, journal. What would he do? He would, he would go up to his room, he'd close the door, and he'd go and he'd sit at that little desk he had that looked out the window, and he would just write his thoughts, right? And for him, uh, that writing tablet of, of his um, was a place where he got away, he got into his inner chamber, and he put down the secret thoughts of his heart that were in a very uh, meaningful way. And for him, that was a very private thing. If any of the brothers or sisters or anybody tried to find John Boy's tablet, uh, that was completely verboten, right? I mean, like, that could be fisticuffs. And in the same way that John Boy held that little tablet of his, that writing tablet of his, just so precious and private and secret, it seems that that's kind of the idea that we can almost envision here when you pray. Go into your inner room. Seek a place of complete solace with God, where it's just you and God. He already knows your heart. He knows the words you're going to say before you say them, but he wants to hear them. He commands you to pray. He, does, he desires intimacy with you. He desires to, for you to demonstrate through your discipline and obedience in praying that you're finding a glad submission to him. You're learning to be still and know that he is God. And isn't that one of the hardest things for us to do in our culture today? We are so busy. Our schedules are so packed. We got so many other interests, so many other loves, so many places to be. We hardly have time to cultivate a disciplined, quiet time, it seems, in our culture today because there are so many sources pulling at us, beckoning us to be in other places. God is desiring intimacy, church, with you, his people. And so he commands you to pray. The clear expectation of the life of the child of God is that of prayer. And he wants you to come into an inner place, an inner sanctum, a place where it's just you and him. He already knows what you're going to say. He knows the burdens of your heart, but he wants and he's glad to hear you say them and to demonstrate intimacy with him, dependence on him, a willingness to submit to him, to his way, his word, his will, as we're going to see as we get into the prayer. Not my will, but thy will be done. Do you think perhaps there's room for a lot of crying in that place of intimacy? Just maybe? 
If you haven't lived long enough, if you haven't had enough life in your rearview mirror, you're perhaps thinking, well, not yet, but trust me, it's your time's coming. There, there will be circumstances and issues of the heart that are so intimate that you will get before God and you will weep your eyes out asking God to, sh to give you wisdom and for mercy and circumstances in your life. If we fail to cultivate this level of intimacy with God, it's not that we can't have a relationship with Him, but we're so missing out on the reward that comes from, from our Heavenly Father of being cultivated into His image, into His likeness, and that comes from a dependency and a training of our, of our soul, a self-discipline to be still and to know that He is God. Anytime a preacher preaches on prayer, he feels the burden of the congregation because he feels the burden of his own soul. And he knows that we're not all that different after all. We're people made in the image of God. We've got the same adversary, the devil, who tries to pull us away and get, to give us differing desires. So again, I don't want you to leave discouraged thinking about perhaps where your prayer life is today. I want you to, if there's a need for repentance, then do that. But I want you to think about where your prayer life could be beginning today and where God wants it to be starting today and moving forward. Amen? That's what it's about. And if your adversary, the devil, tries to make you feel super discouraged because perhaps you're not praying the way you would like to pray and perhaps you're not praying at all, take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every single time the tempter comes in to try to make you feel worthless or useless because you haven't prayed or whatever. Take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and just get back to the practice, the discipline. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of prayer. Again, Spurgeon said, if it be indeed to God that we pray, there can be no need for anyone else to be present. For it would hinder rather than help devotion to have a third person for witness of the heart's private interactions with the Lord. Secret prayer is truly heard and openly answered in the Lord's own way and time. Our king reigns in secret. There he sets up his court and there he will welcome our approaches. We are not where God sees when we court publicly and pray to obtain credit for our devotion. Brothers and sisters, we must be cultivating the inner life of prayer and intimacy with God. Now, I want to give you a sneak peek. If you're thinking I'm going to finish all the way through verse 15 today, you're wrong. as You probably already knew that. But I do want to give you a, a, a sneak peek on what's to come as we get to verse 9 and following and finishing up this section on prayer for next week. And I want to show you nine ways that God uses prayer to grow us spiritually and to conform us into the image of Christ. Now, you, your heart just stopped when I said nine because you think I'm going to explicate on each nine of these right now. I'm not. Notice, I'm just going to, just going to list them. But these will be the things, the nine things that we look at next week from verse 9 down through verse 15. We're going to see nine ways that God will use prayer to grow us spiritually and thus conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Prayer will strengthen our family identity and faith. Prayer will strengthen our worship. 
prayer will, number three, strengthen our expectation of his coming kingdom. Four, our submission to him, to the Lord. Five, our daily dependence for physical needs. Six, our confession. Seven, it will strengthen our compassion for others. And eight, it will strengthen our daily dependence for his holiness. And nine, an acknowledgement of his sovereign rule over all things. Jesus gave his disciples a sample prayer here, and it's oftentimes referred to as the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps you've even heard of it referred to as the Disciples' Prayer because he's instructing and teaching his disciples on how they should pray when they pray. Again, when you pray, he's like, pray then this way. This, again, wasn't just simply for Matthew and the rest of the 12. Uh, This, brothers and sisters, is for all of God's kids, those who call themselves Christians, and who have purposed to follow Jesus with all of their heart and soul, mind and strength. Amen? So next week, come back. We'll finish this section on prayer. Let's pray.